It's a treat to be with you today. Our passage is Revelation chapter 1. Hear now God's word for us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. In the quietness of your heart right here, right now, I want to invite you, as you're listening, to pray that God would speak, that he would reveal himself to you in a unique way in this moment. Do that now. Simultaneously, now I want you to pray for those who are meeting in person, those who are gathering on Sunday morning, who are able to do so. Pray that the Lord would show up and reveal himself to them as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation that you have given to us by the John of Patmos. We are grateful for the gift of your word 
and your vision. We pray, Lord, that even now you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that we would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you long to reveal to us even now. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayer. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, it doesn't take a genius uh, to feel like this year could easily be dubbed the year of the apocalypse. And frankly, we should have been able to see the signs, right? You had Harry and Meghan step down from Buckingham Palace earlier this year. Chiefs, the Chiefs, our beloved Chiefs, they won the Super Bowl. We had murder hornets show up in the Northwest. Tiger King somehow was popular on Netflix. And some of you are thinking, well, of course it was popular because it's amazing. You're just proving my point. A meteor was actually projected to hit the earth the day before the election. We should have seen the signs. And some of you may think that we did see the signs and the fact that we're now going through the book of Revelation. Well, you need to know that we're neither not that, we're not that smart, nor are we that stupid to just pick this book out of nowhere. We actually chose to go through this book two years ago. If you know anything about us at Christ Community, we're planners. We chose this way before we knew half of what was going to happen. We knew it was going to be an election season, and we knew that would be difficult. But no way did we think it was this going to be this difficult. And yet, some of you may be thinking when you hear that we're going through Revelation, you may be thinking a whole host of things. Some of you may be grabbing your charts and your maps. You can't wait to hear who we think the beast is or the excitement to dive into some conspiracy theories. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not where we're going to be going. Others of you may be freaking out, thinking that we think that the world is coming to an end. And others of you are like, really? Now? Like when we are in the midst of a pandemic, when there are protests, when we're in the midst of a highly contentious election? Is this really what we need? Well, I think this is exactly what we need. Revelation, although always being an extraordinarily weird book, has always been really hopeful and actually always very timely. And so over these next 10 weeks, we're going to walk through these 22 chapters, which means we're going to move a little quickly, primarily because we don't want to be in this book until the end of the world. Along the way, though, we're not going to just learn what Revelation is seeking to reveal. We're also going to learn how to read Revelation more responsibly. So what's the message of Revelation as a whole? When it's important when you're reading a book to think of the broad themes that encompass, encompass the whole book throughout the various chapters. And so we've entitled our series off of one of the major themes of Revelation. And here it is. Everything sad untrue. Everything sad will one day come untrue. All wrongs will be righted, every, tears will, every tear will be wiped from your eye and from my eye. Everything that's lost will be replaced, all evil will be undone. Everything broken will be restored, shame and guilt will be of the past. This is where history is headed. This is the trajectory that the biblical narrative gives us, that one day everything sad will be untrue. But some of you may be thinking, but Gabe, when I look at the world around me, it feels like we're going in the opposite direction, not towards restoration, or at the very least, it feels like things are standing still. So how do we make sense of this? This is exactly why we need the revelation. And just to be clear, so we're all on the same page, it's singular. The revelation, not the revelations. So where do we go? Let's step into the context in which this revelation 
was given. In the first century, the church was experiencing persecution and pressure from the surrounding culture. And John, the author of the Revelation, is on Patmos. And the reason he gives in verse 9 is on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. Most folks believe, and commentators and scholars believe, that that's code for persecution. He was proclaiming the news of Jesus and what God is doing through Christ, and so was exiled to Patmos. And so he sees Jesus is working in this vision, and he sees that Jesus is coming, and he's seeking to give a word of hope to God's people. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, and Jesus hasn't come back. He hasn't fixed everything, not yet. And while most of us here in the United States are not being persecuted, or if we are experiencing something akin to persecution, it's nowhere close to what they were experiencing in the first century, we still feel the darkness and sense a threat that's hanging over us. And we all know something's wrong, right? Just take a broad brushstrokes of just what's happening in our culture. Politicians promise that if you vote for them, then they're gonna make things right again. Right? Religion promises if you obey their teachings, then, 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 then things will be right again. Business promise if you buy their product, then you will feel right again. The proponents of the culture wars promise that if we fight alongside them, then you can keep or make the world right again. We know it's not true. We know it's bigger than that. But we keep hoping. We keep thinking, maybe this time, maybe this will be the linchpin. And so John, alongside of the first century church, and us today are asking what's happening. And really, what's going to happen to us in the midst of all of this? And so Jesus shows up to John, and he shows him something that we all long to see. He shows him himself. And he reveals that everything sad comes untrue for those who are his. This is the claim of Revelation, and it's a strange and confusing and a hope-filled claim. And this book, it gave the earliest Christians the power to navigate a broken and sad world with courageous and unshakable joy. And you have to ask yourself, what did they know that we didn't? And here's what they knew. They knew the Revelation, and so should we. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. A little helpful tip, it's the last book in your Bible. So, first, an important starting point before we even begin to dive into the text. And it's under, understanding what is the text before us. Revelation comes with a unique genre, a style, okay? And right here in the name, we get a hint as to what that is. The name in chapter 1, verse 1, the Revelation, okay? The Greek word behind the English word revelation is the word apocalypsis. What comes to your mind when you hear the word apocalypsis? It's the end of the world, right? That's what we naturally think. We think of zombies or atomic bombs or uh, a pandemic. <laughs> you know? it's, it's natural, and here's why. Even our English translation of the word apocalypse is this. It is the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. Now, there's only one problem. Um, in the Greek, apocalypsis doesn't mean that. <laughs> so the English transliteration of the word apocalypse has a different meaning than actually the Greek word does, and therefore than what the Bible means by apocalypse. An apocalypse, an apocalypsis means 
making something fully known. It's revealing something. It's pulling back the curtain on the world, which assumes something really important, that no matter who you are, you are blinded by your particular social location. And we need God to open our eyes to what's actually happening in the world around us. And it's not just a future reality he wants to reveal, but a present-day perspective as well. Is it the end of the world? Is that what he's seeking to reveal? Maybe partly, and most assuredly, eventually. But we don't get that from the word revelation or the word apocalypse. As a matter of fact, if you look at other spaces in the New Testament where the word apocalypse is used, they're often not used to point to the end of the world, but to revealing something magnificent. So first, the revelation is an apocalypse, and the apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. It means revealing something. Secondly, it is a prophetic apocalypse. Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, if you go to the last, or last chapter of this book, we see that the apostle John sees that he's taking up the mantle of the Old Testament prophets and is given visions by the power of the Spirit to share with the people of God how God is working through Christ in his mission both now and into the future. So it's a prophetic apocalypse for the people of God. And so lastly, it's not just a prophetic apocalypse, but it's sent as a circular letter to real churches in the first century who can make sense of it. This is really important. Chapters 2 and 3 aren't like a major decoder exercise where we try to figure out where the... These are real churches in the first century in Asia Minor. In chapter 22, verse 10, we get a window into that where God tells John not to seal this letter. This is biblical language, which means it's important guidance for its original readers in the first century. This isn't some esoteric code to be unlocked by readers on a much later date. And just to give you a comparison, if you go to Daniel chapter 12, an Old Testament prophet, verse 4, we see that God does tell Daniel to seal up that prophecy because it only will make sense later in history. Not so in the Revelation. Here, it is meant to be read, applied, understood, and engaged by a first century audience. So, Revelation is a prophetic apocalypse sent as a circular letter, meaning it's giving us truly heavenly perspective for believers in the first century, how to view the world as to what's coming, as to what is, and can still be gleaned in every generation thereafter. And so we have an extraordinary gift that when things feel like they're chaotic, when they feel like they're out of our control, we can be able, we're able to pull back the curtain and see what God is actually doing as he's continuing his mission that he's been carrying out throughout history. So how does this revelation start? How it starts is pretty crucial because where we start makes all the difference in helping us understand and answer one of the most important questions we can possibly ask for us as human beings, and especially in this moment in history. Here's the question that Revelation, here at the beginning, is seeking to completely answer in a robust way, and here it is. Who is in charge? Who's in charge? Who's in control of all of this in the midst of chaos, right? When we feel like we're out of control, who's in charge? And Revelation again and again and again makes it abundantly clear that all of heaven shouts his name. All authority has been entrusted to him both in heaven and on earth. His name 
is Jesus. And when his reign is recognized and celebrated, here's our thesis for this morning as we continue through Revelation chapter 1. We see that Jesus is the one who makes everything sad untrue. Jesus is the one who makes everything sad untrue. Look with me again at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. We will move past this. Hang with me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the man in first century history who lived, died, and rose again. The Christ, which is a title pointing to Messiahhood, and also him being the anointed one, the one throughout all of history has been pointing to. He must be the one who changes the world. And this is an important revelation because it's not going to just happen. And it won't just happen if we get the quote-unquote right person in the White House. It won't just happen if we have technologically advanced to the point past suffering. It won't just happen if we can just get a vaccine that protects us from COVID so we can get back to life as usual. Now, none of those things are inconsequential, but really what we're being shown here, when, when, when the world is really being revealed for who's in charge, we're coming to see that there's something bigger that's even happening. And ultimately, this change happens when Jesus shows up. When he's here, he's the one who makes everything sad untrue. And to be clear, not just someday, off in the distant future, but beginning here and now. How can we be so sure when so many other people and so many other organizations and movements are vying for our allegiance to give them ultimate control? Why Jesus? I'm going to give you three surprising reasons that are anchored here in Revelation chapter 1. Number one, Jesus loves us best. Jesus loves us best. How do we know that? There's a combo of two things right here in these early verses of Revelation chapter 1. First, we see that Jesus is all powerful. Look at verse 8. He's the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come. He's over time, and yet he's entered time. He's described as the Almighty. He has all power. Then you go to verse 5, and he's described as the faithful witness. He perfectly describes God and speaks of God and points to God as the living Word of God. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's conquered the grave. He's the ruler of kings on earth. When he comes in the clouds in verse 7, the whole world takes notice and wails. Jesus is all-powerful. But that doesn't make him all-loving. It's what he does with his power. Jesus pursues our freedom by his power. Look at the second half of verse 5. We read, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins, by his blood. He has made us a kingdom. He's given us access to God as priests. And he's done all of that because he loves us. He's brought about our liberation. This kind of power plus this kind of pursuit equals holy love. And there is no one like him that has ever been throughout history or that has ever been across the globe. This is Jesus. And he loves us best. Can you see him for who he is? Not who the world might portray him to be, but who he's revealing himself to be as he's apocalypsing, if you want to say it that way, himself here in the Revelation. Second surprising reason 
why we should allow Jesus to have our allegiance and understand it, that he indeed is the one in control, is that Jesus is already working among us. You know, one of the things that my kids uh, pray often, and I think it's just the reality in the world that we live, is they'll pray, God, don't let Satan win. You hear their gentle cry and plea in the midst of so much other chaos and just life interrupted. They feel like the evil one is kind of making some progress. And we can feel that way, can't we? Like Jesus is some, on some vacation somewhere, and the world has become Satan's playground rather than an avenue where God's redemptive purposes are being carried out. But what we can't miss is that actually Jesus is among the lampstands, which isn't a statement about Hobby Lobby, okay? This is a statement here in the text that's really important. Look with me at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man." What does that have to do with anything? Well, if you go down to verse 20, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the lampstands are the churches gathered. Where is Jesus? He's among the churches gathered. He's with us when we gather in his name. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't turned on us. This isn't something way off in the distant future. He's already working among us because of his holy love for us. And often we can't see it, so we need to, to be revealed to us so we can be encouraged by the actual presence of Christ among us when we gather in his name. Now, he is working among us, but we have to remember that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah brilliantly reminds us and constantly situates us with our finite perspective on reality. He's not nostalgic over our past, trying to get us back to what we perceive as the good old days. He's calling us forward to a different city, a place which this world has never known. He's got a forward-looking perspective, not to bring us back. He's not calling us even back to a garden that he himself planted. But it's a city that he will bring down from heaven amidst a garden that will be even more beautiful, more delightful than the original garden. You see, he's working now in the citizens of this new kingdom, this new heavens and new earth. You and me, those who are his, his churches, where the Sermon on the Mount is embodied in our values, where the fruit of the Spirit characterizes our interactions with one another, where justice and mercy and humility coexist, where his holy love defines us. There, he's already working among us. And then the third reason why we should see him in charge is that Jesus can never be stopped. Did you hear how Jesus was described in this passage beginning in verse 13? In verse 17, John falls on the ground as if he's dead. He's like, whoa, man, I, I can't take that. Whoa, it's an astounding image of who God in Christ is. 
Now, to be clear, this portrayal of Jesus isn't meant to be taken literally, but rather to fire our imaginations for who Jesus actually is. John, by the Spirit's inspiration, has brought together images from other passages to help us grasp who Jesus really is. I want you to look at them again with me. He's dressed in white robes and a golden sash. This is the garments of a priest. He's playing the role of a high priest and through whom we have access to God the Father. His hair is white like wool. This means he's all wise. There's nothing that he doesn't understand. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and that means he sees everything. He has omniscience. His feet are burnished bronze, strong and pure. His voice is like the roar of mighty waters. Oh, this is awe-inspiring in who he is. He held the stars, which are the principalities and powers. This is meant to communicate his omnipotence. He has all power. He has a sword for a tongue because he speaks with judgment in line with the perfect word of God. And he has a beaming bright face, which is the glory of God emanating from within himself. Jesus is astounding here. And yet, in the midst of a glorious picture of who Jesus is, we're told not to fear. That's not the reaction Jesus is pursuing from those who are his. Look with me again at verse 17 and 18. But he laid, Jesus laid his right hand on me, John speaking here, saying, and Jesus says, fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The worst thing that evil can throw at us, death, cannot stop Jesus. And so no matter whether there's a vaccine or not, no matter whether you can't imagine receiving the vaccine, no matter what you decided to do with your kids this fall, no matter how stressed you feel about the economy, no matter how worried you feel about work or getting a job or getting that next paycheck, no matter who wins in November, no matter if there's a huge mess around figuring out who wins in November, no matter what you face, we don't have to be afraid because the one who's in charge holds the keys to death in Hades. Nothing can stop his forward march to life. Jesus is the one who makes everything sad untrue. He loves us the best. He's already working among those who are gathering in his name, and he cannot, he cannot be stopped. And I think that's reason enough to trust him. And we'll see some of that work now when we gather in his name, but most fully later. You see, when the church is who she's called to be and recognizes and celebrates Jesus' reign among her now, we experience whispers of this restoration. But we'll hear shouts of it later. We get a foretaste here and now, but it will be a feast later. So what do we do when we're given insight to this? When the curtain is pulled back and we see Jesus for who he is and what he is doing, and how he's in charge, how are we to respond? Here's our response. We are to live expecting Jesus. Live expecting Jesus. 
We're not to live expecting chaos without anyone, you know, without anyone in control. We're not to live, you know, careless. We are to live expecting Jesus. Aligning with his kingdom now. Submitting to his lordship now. Watching for him. Listening for him. Listening to him and what he has communicated already through his word. And over the remaining nine weeks, we'll see more and more how powerful that is in a dark world. We'll see how it cultivates in you and me and us together a deeper freedom, a deeper hope, a deeper love, and a deeper joy. Such that when Jesus actually does return in his fullness, it will be like when Gandalf returns in The Lord of the Rings. When Samwise says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad? going to come untrue. What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Oh, that that day would come. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until then, may we still see him even now. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Heavenly Father. Come, Holy Spirit, and reign supreme. Amen. Amen. You know, in a world of inequities, distortion, half-truths, and darkness, we're actually invited to bask in the table of a king every week where all receive equal abundant grace in the truth of the gospel. That's the Lord's Supper. Here we remember through common broken bread and common juice, Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have some elements handy and you'd like to partake, I'd encourage you to do that now. Grab some friends and others around your apartment or your house and remember what God in Christ has done for you. But before we come, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So until he comes, take this moment today to taste and see that Jesus is indeed among us and he indeed loves us.